You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. Now, if you're a fan of this podcast or have feedback, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Now, in this episode of Inside Healthcare, we talk digital transformation with a prominent medical informaticist. Then we hear a conversation on NCQA's Long-Term Services and Supports Program, aka LTSS, from a longtime accredited managed care supporter and partner. Later in our Fast Facts segment, I talk directly to clinicians and office managers with tips on talking vaccines to parents, including the reluctant ones. But first, Dr. John Glasser is executive-in-residence at Harvard Medical School Executive Education. Previously, he was chief executive officer of Siemens Health Services. He is former chair of the Global Agenda Council on Digital Health in the World Economic Forum and former senior advisor to the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. He's also a member of NCQA's Board of Directors. Dr. Glasser will also be at NCQA's second annual Health Innovation Summit, coming up October 2023. In addition to helping open the summit, he'll sit on a C-suite panel alongside NCQA President Peggy O'Kane and other industry leaders, collectively discussing, among other topics, the transition to a digital health ecosystem. Now, in this interview, helping promote the summit, thank you, John gets down to brass tacks and tells us why the healthcare industry should not fear change or digitalization. At the foundational level, what we want to do is capture data in its electronic form from the electronic health record and reduce the need to have to go to paper and reduce the need to have to do abstraction of the charts in order to collect the data. And by sort of taking advantage of the native digital nature of a lot of this data, we can save time and money and just reduce the burden required just to collect data in the first place. Now, on the other hand, digital quality measurement is broader than sort of the capture mechanism. It refers to the fact that we can take advantage of this really wide range of data. And this is data that's in the electronic health record, but it's also data on wearable devices or genetic information or data on social determinants. So we have this increasingly broad array of data that's electronically captured that we can leverage and find the most appropriate way to incorporate that into our measurements of quality. But it also refers to a broader range of uses that become potential, not just the delivery of care and the management of health, as important as those are, uh, but also to conduct clinical research uh, and to engage in public health measures. And we obviously saw that in, in a big way in the COVID pandemic. And we could take it even further. It's more than the reporting of the data. I give you kind of a scorecard of how you did or where you need to improve. Um, but we can use advanced analytics, particularly uh, recently advances in artificial intelligence to identify patterns. You know, is one treatment better than another treatment? Is that showing up in the data? Or to do predictions to say that an individual might be on their way to poor health if we don't do something fairly quickly. And then last but not least in this sort of digital quality measurement space is we're now in the ability 
to take the results of this capture and the results of this analysis and incorporate it back into the workflow of the clinician to remind him or her of the need to do this or to check that, but also in back into the lives of our patients about things that they might want to do, steps that they can take to manage their health into healthcare. Now, just as we've seen advances in a wide range of industries that affect our personal lives, you know, banking, uh, travel, even agriculture, that have taken advantage of the digital nature of their data and their services, and we've seen amazing gains in our in what they do and how we interact with them, we should expect the same types of gains to occur in healthcare. Digital transformation is is difficult, to say the least. Uh, it's a new world, and some people feel like they're being, frankly, that they're being dragged into it. There are pain points for everybody, but there's some companies that are feeling more and more reluctant uh, to going through conversions and transformations uh, that are necessary. So uh, what factors can improve the likelihood that these transformations are successful? Not talking about their attitude necessarily, but just saying in general, what are some of the advantages of going through uh, these transformations? And what are some indicators that tell us uh, that they've been successful in going through this? You know, existing companies that have gone through transformations of a wide variety of sorts, they'll grow brick and mortar, et cetera. What do we learn? Well, we learned the failure rate's pretty high. In fact, only about 30% are successful. In other words, they, they achieve what they wanted to achieve, and they did so within, you know, kind of what they thought it would take in terms of time and money. But 70%, quote, failed. Now, failed has two forms. About, you know, one is that they're just train wrecks. Um, but more likely is that they are disappointing. The people who invested money and effort said, that's it. That's all we got out of this. After all that effort and all that time and all that money, this is it. Kind of disappointing. So when you look at, well, why were they successful? You find five factors. And just then you realize it's, you know, you've got to do this in a way. It's an imperative as, as unpleasant and as challenging it might be. Factor number one is that they focused on the transformation. I think times think that the word digital transformation is the wrong way to say it. It's transformation enabled by digital technology. It's the transformation that matters. What do you want to transform to and why? Um, and to what degree can the technology be helpful here? Sometimes it's not. So the technology is secondary. Now, what you find sometimes is that companies go through, get all shiny object syndrome. They get all dazzled by AI or dazzled by blockchain or whatever it is and forget why they're here. And so first thing that they do is they make sure they hold the transformation. And in our case, that transformation is we're going to improve the efficiency of care, or we're going to be better at managing populations of health, or we're going to shorten the time to get a medication on the, on the market by factor 10, whatever it is. This is the transformation and what technology do we need? The second thing they did when there's transformation is really create an innovative business model. And by that, we mean they changed what they do uh, in a serious way. So an example, a famous one is Netflix went from the, what it does was distribute other people's contents initially on CDs and then streaming to it actually says, well, now we're going to make our own content. It changed what it did in lots of ways. Sometimes it involves changing how you do it in a very big way. So you look at Uber and uh, what it does, it gets you from point A to point B in a city, for example, but so does a bicycle, so does a subway. But how Uber does it is really quite remarkable. In lots of ways. So there's nothing wrong with using the technology. In fact, it's a good thing to make steady improvements. But the real advances come when you take a leap and do something really quite different. And you can see this in the retail. Some of the new entrants in healthcare, you know, the retail pharmacies, retailers who are getting into care delivery. It's a new business model for them. Third thing that they did was they had strong competencies. If you really want to do well at transformation, you have to be good at managing change. You have to be good at forming partnerships. You have to be good at innovation. You have to be have pretty good decision processes, et cetera. 
So organizations that were successful focused on just core competencies and abilities to execute it on lots of ways. You can get in trouble if you're just not very good at managing change. You know, you get into transformation, it doesn't work very well. That's because you're just not very good at managing change. So strengthen that. The fourth thing that it did was that the companies understood the nature of transformation. First thing is transformation actually never stops. So, you know, wherever you get to, you know, say five years into this thing, well, the technology's changed, the business circumstances have changed, and so you have to continue to transform. In fact, what you find with companies that are really good at it, they say it's like finance, it's like human resources. You just do it because you have to do it and you will always be doing it, et cetera. So settle into this never ending journey uh, because you will always need to accommodate new technologies, new business circumstances, et cetera. The second is rarely do companies as part of that take this big leap. Instead, they take a step and assess, take a step and assess, take a step and assess, take a step. It is this highly iterative learning process. They take big steps, but not too big of a step here. And they calibrate along the way. This worked, this didn't work. We need to shift this by 15 degrees. But it's this step assess, step assess process. Uh, and it can take years, frankly. And then the last point here is that they manage implementations well. You know, you've got your vision. You're pretty good at your competencies. You understand the nature. But you still have to manage the implementation, you know, workflow and training and new technology and you know, helping people settle into the new work that's got to be done. So I think the transformation is a fact of life. It's not easy, but it's a fact of life. And you can make sure that your efforts are more successful and not if you follow these five factors, which we've learned from a wide range of industries. Well, the next thing I wanted to ask you about is interoperability. So uh, interoperability in healthcare has a lot of potential for enabling major advances in care delivery and public health or research. Uh, Talk about how can we accelerate interoperability, especially as it presents that level of a, a, a solution for a company that's having difficulty yeah. in change. One of the big challenges, if you say, I have to do a digital transformation, is in getting the organization to do that when you're successful. These are hard. These are scary and you know expensive. And people say, why? We're doing well. You know, we're, we're doing well in the market. We're making lots of money. We're growing. And you know, what's not to like about this? Why mess with a program that's working? And so that's different than if you say our back's against the wall. We've got a competitor that's pretty scary or the government's come in and done all kinds of regulations that are upsetting the apple cart. We got to move or we're in trouble. You know, there you have fear, if nothing else, to leverage on this. But it's hard when things are going well. I think one of the things we can learn from is where interoperability has worked better than it has in healthcare. And those were, there are really two industries is banking and travel uh, that have gone on the case. And, you know, we, the old apocryphal, you know, you go anywhere you want in the in the world and use your, your card and get cash out of the machine, or you go into a travel site and you can book your flight and your hotel and, you know, tours of the city, wherever you're happy to go. It's, geez, that's pretty good. So when they're successful, and most industries aren't, frankly, that's one of the things, you know, healthcare beats itself up and perhaps it should, but it's got a lot of company in terms of industries that just aren't very successful at interoperability. But when you see it, you see three factors that have gone on. One is that they neither industry tried to do it all. They focus on very specific transactions. So you look at banking, for example, you know, when you at the end of the day, all the banks settle up. So they let's say, how are the checks that have been deposited to me and the checks written against me? And I need to move money between banks. The SWIFT uh, alliance is what does all that sort of settles up across the board. So that works and works pretty well. So you get a check from Wells Fargo and that's deposited and, you know, Wells Fargo and Bank of America know what to do here. That being said, if you went into an ATM and said, I want $20 and it looks into your, let's say, Bank of America account and it says, you don't have it. 
uh, you've only got 10, but tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull all the other banks in the world to see where else does John Glasser have an account. And if I find one, I'm going to say, does he have 10 bucks? And if he does, I'm going to take it out of that account and move it into your Bank of America account and give you the 20 bucks. That doesn't happen. Why does it not happen? Banks don't want it to happen. Why not? Because they don't want some competitor bank rummaging around their database of customers and saying, holy smokes, John's got a lot of money. You know, Maybe we ought to entice John to come move all of his assets to Bank of America. So what they haven't done is have broad interoperability across all range of tractors. They've gone after particular transactions, but nonetheless, real value. So one of the things to do in healthcare, and we're starting to get better at this, is really targeting where do we want it? We'll never get it all. No industry ever has. Where do we want to get it? The second is when you do target, it's because it makes sense, business sense to the participants. So there, let's say you and I are sitting at a table with dozens and dozens of our competitors and say, we all ought to cooperate to share data. And you're thinking, I don't know, who are these guys? I don't really trust them, et cetera. But each of us sitting at the table say, I can see what's in it for me. I can see the business gain that I'm going to get. Uh, and I also see that for me to get my gain, I need you to get your gain. I can't do this without you. It's like email. I can see what's in it for me on email or text messaging, but I need other people to do it too. Otherwise, I don't get my gain. So there's interdependency of clear gains uh, that I have. So the banks settling up at the end of the day saw, I see what's in it for me. If I don't know, you know how much money I've got, I'm in a lot of trouble. So where there's gain, and clear gain to all participants, you'll get it. Now, I think one of the challenges in healthcare we have is, frankly, you know, we say we should share data about a patient, but there you are, you're in fairness to them, you're the CEO of the health system, say, you want me to connect to all these other folks? What's in it for me? You know, I'm going to spend money here. I'm going to divert energy from other efforts that, you know, the nurses need this and the doctors need this. And so, you know, this is a diversion of stuff that really knew, why am I going to be ahead? And it's not good enough to say it's in the best interest of the patients. That just, I mean, it's right, but it's just not good enough to do that, frankly. So I think we can make progress in interoperability. We'll never get it all, but we do. Well, let's target on certain transactions. Let's get dismiss the notion that we'll cover everything. Let's make sure we have, uh, you know, symmetric business, uh, you know, gain across the board and that we have a coordinating body to pull it all together. My next question is about AI. Um, there's a lot of excitement about AI, but the questions are more today about practical applications within healthcare. What should organizations be doing now to take everybody off the fence? Let's everybody calm down yeah. in order to take advantage of AI and, and, and be managing possible risks right now. And where do you think things might be, say, two years from now? Because it's that rapid change. I wouldn't even say 10 oh, yeah. years. But oh, even yeah. like a year or two from now, where do you think things will be? Well, I think AI is exceptionally serious and exceptionally powerful. So this rivals the internet and this rivals the mobile device in terms of the impact it will have on our lives uh, and on industry in general. It's also like those uh, technologies or classes of technologies back in the day is still very early. So there's lots of hype about wonderful things it's going to do and lots of concern if, you know, the world's going to end and all that kind of stuff here. And there's just a lot of noise. That's surrounding there and not a whole lot of experience yet to say, here's what's real. And it's, and even the technology is a little immature, et cetera. So I think as an organization say, look, I got to, I want to do something here while this noise settles out and I think become a little bit clearer. And I say, here's what I do. I want to pay attention to it. You have to, you know, this is a big deal. You don't really know, but it's time to start learning. And let's conduct pilots and let's try it in this area and try it there. I think most of the early use will be in the clinical administrative area, generating initial progress notes, 
you know, for a physician to review or forming email responses from patients about what to do, et cetera, or doing utilization management. It will not be replacing the doc decision-making process, et cetera. So it'll be in that area where you can see real gain. It's real business value, but also the risks are a lot lower that's going on. So start through some pilots, getting a balanced set of pilots. Start learning. Come to the NCQA Health Innovation Summit and learn. Talk to your colleagues and learn. Talk to consultants and learn. It's time for learning. Uh, what's really working and what are some of the issues, et cetera. I also think it's time to start forming partnerships. You know, we're going to be, you know, there's a lot of, you know, whether it's Microsoft or Google or AWS or smaller companies, et cetera, you're going to need some help. And you're going to need people who've got the technology, who've got the smart people, who've got the experience, but start to form those partnerships that are going to help you figure out what to do here, et cetera. You know, what we don't want to do is have the physicians do an AI-generated or generative AI note without further review, et cetera. Some basic stuff that's got to go on along the board here. So I would continue to do that kind of stuff, et cetera. And, and, and make sure that that for two to three years is what I will be doing. Now, one thing I want you to remember here, nobody buys AI. You know, you don't go down to the store and say, give me a box of AI. You buy something else that performs better because of AI. You buy an electronic health record or a documentation system, and it performs better because of AI or imaging technology. So when you're looking at buying something, and whether it's in pilot mode or full production mode, you ask the vendor or the person selling it, why does this perform better because AI? What does AI do? It makes this perform better, and let's make sure it's relevant to me. The other is, how do you manage these risks? How much risks of bias? So what steps do you take to go off and do this? So this is something that increasingly those who offer products and services that are based on AI need to have coherent and thoughtful answers to this. And if you don't like the answer, you think it smells fishy or, you know, uh, lack of substance, then back off from it. But anyway, right now, I think get your toes in the water, but don't put your, your whole leg in the water at this point. There's no point to this stuff. Let's start to learn and collectively share. And again, at the Health Innovation Summit, uh, you'll learn a lot about AI and other technologies. NCQA board member, Dr. John Glasser, putting digital transformation into perspective. Everyone, it's time again to focus on the place, the place that inspires and accelerates healthcare quality in America. I'm talking, of course, about NCQA's upcoming Health Innovation Summit. For three amazing days in October 2023, the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida will host our annual convention, bringing together leaders from across the healthcare ecosystem. The summit will focus on all aspects of quality, including digital solutions, health equity, and value-based care. It will feature thought-provoking speakers, one-of-a-kind education opportunities, and an exhibit floor showcasing the latest in innovation. And I'm happy to announce that in the coming weeks leading up to the summit, each episode of this podcast, Inside Healthcare, will include an exclusive interview, just like it is today in this episode, with a featured speaker that you will see and you can meet if you come to the summit. So keep coming back here for more. Register now for NCQA's 2023 Health Innovation Summit. Go to ncqasummit.com for more. In 2020, an estimated 5.8 million people used paid long-term services and supports, known as LTSS, which were delivered in-home and community settings, and 1.9 million people used LTSS delivered in institutional settings, and this is according to CBO estimates. Incidentally, most people ages 65 and older, and many younger than 65 with disabilities, have Medicare, but 
Medicare does not cover most LTSS. Medicaid is the primary payer for LTSS. So considering how important LTSS is in American healthcare, NCQA shines a light on these services with our LTSS accreditation programs. In fact, there's big news. New standards become effective for NCQA's LTSS accreditation programs starting in July 2024. Program standards provide a framework for organizations to deliver effective person-centered care that meets people's needs while aligning with state requirements. So to talk about LTSS, we interviewed a program expert from Centene, a prominent managed care company working with government and private coverage plans. Centene is the largest Medicaid-managed care organization in the United States, as well as the largest carrier on the health insurance marketplace. And Centene is a strong supporter of NCQA's LTSS programs. These programs help organizations improve their operations and initiatives in targeted areas and demonstrate overall their commitment to quality. So now, if you're one of Centene's more than 28 million managed care members, you might have benefited from the help and insights of our guest today. Nicole McLean is an accreditation manager for Centene, and she spends much of her time working with NCQA on our LTSS programs. But which services are included in LTSS? What could they be? Well, as Nicole will tell you, in order to evaluate which services and supports people really need, you first have to learn about the patient. What we're doing here, what NCQA is seeking to accomplish is when you distill it all down, is essentially for us to know how to deliver the right care to the right person at the right time. And that's the beauty of health equity. And infusing that into everything that we do will help us to work smarter and not harder. So tell me about the work with health equity and um, and what you're up against in, in trying to view this program, LTSS, through a health equity lens? How do you work to identify who needs help? How do you, what do you think you'll have to do to redefine what you're already doing? So essentially, when you think about LTSS, most people think about LTSS as waiver type. So you might have um, a traumatic brain injury waiver, you might have an IDD waiver, you might have a physical handicap or excuse me, physical disability waiver. So there's all of these unique waivers. And when you look at them, that's kind of the way that we've segmented the LTSS population thus far. But if you take a look at what NCQA is asking plans to do, asking organizations to do, essentially, they want to have the organization identify the diversity of those subpopulations. And in doing so is really going to help promote creativity and authenticity in our program. Again, like the idea of delivering the right care to the right person at the right time. So we want to make sure that we're looking at the member outside of just the waiver type to see who the individual member is. And then to make sure that we have the right programs and the right services and the right delivery system in place in order to effectuate change for that member. It sounds like if, if you do this, when you really focus on population health as a, a driver for the services, um, there's no way to avoid having increased value, really having value-based care um, so that you can really focus on the individual. So how do you see these additional measures within LTSS 
making it easier or facilitating for uh, providers to really focus on individual patients as opposed to maybe seeing them in as a blanket group. Right. So I love the fact that you said that as well. And again, taking it down to delivering the right care to the right member at the right time. What NCQA is trying to do is to try to get us to think strategically so that our interventions are focused in such a way that's going to provide real results for the members. And likewise, with the provider, um, NCQA has really put a lot of standards in place, not only in LTSS, but also in the health plan accreditation for us to partner with the providers and then specifically in LTSS. Uh, when you look down into the case management standards, there's actually a factor about following up and having scheduled follow-up with the provider so that you can have an open, candid conversation about what the member needs and what is being provided or what needs to be provided. So I think when we when we look at the the overall idea of accreditation, the overall idea of healthcare, there is a symbiosis that needs to occur between the member, the payer, and the provider. And us being able to identify those subpockets of the population, be able to identify even down to the culturistic aspects of the, the individual that's going to help the provider to deliver the right care to the member, I do think that we're going to see improved outcomes, just this, the way that you said it in terms of value-based care. But I think that's also going to present itself in in. A, a plethora of ways. So we will see that in terms of health plan accreditation in the individual file that's chosen and selected for file review. But we're also going to see that because we're going to have improved health outcomes and a reduction of unplanned transitions overall, just by identifying the needs of the population outside of the segmentation of waiver population. So I think it's a beautiful thing that NCQA is seeking to do and to help plans, again, identify those areas where we can have real results instead of focusing an intervention on the entire population, taking a look at the data and ensuring that from that data, we can identify those people that need it the most and we can make the most um, change with those individuals. And again, sharing and being transparent with those providers. How do you see some of these challenges uh, and and what do you think should be done? What are some initial steps, at least, that companies getting into LTSS and seeing these changes being made? What do you think first steps would be in implementing them? When you think about it from a plan that's in a renewal cycle, I always like to, I always like to say this. Even in disadvantages, there are advantages. So if you are a renewal cycle coming in and you see the proposed changes, understand that a lot of this work is already being done in health plan accreditation through the PHM standards and the population assessment. So essentially what you're gonna do is you're gonna take the logic that's already been built in health plan accreditation and you are going to use that and leverage it for your LTSS population. So while these changes may seem daunting and they may seem um, interesting, I would say interesting, this is going to give you an opportunity for growth overall because you're going to be able to apply the logic that you've already applied and health plan accreditation to your LTSS population, whereas a new plan, you're going to be able to see the potential from starting out with identifying the diversity and the subpopulations for LTSS. If you think about it 
at the very center of everything that NCQA has ever done, it's always been about the member. NCQA has done a fantastic job of providing the foundational programming um, in order for us to work to ensure that our members, the LTSS member, is living optimally in the least restrictive environment and with quality costs or excuse me, with quality um, outcomes that are cost effective. But plans are now going to be able to leverage the new changes in the standards if you're in a renewal phase or just the standards in general. If you're in a first um, survey, you're going to be able to leverage those changes and you're going to have a more focused approach to the individual, to the subpopulation and even into the individual waiver types. So us being aware of cultural norms or preferred languages or religious practices or health beliefs and behaviors that is going to revolutionize your business and take it to the next level. So NCQA has provided this foundation, but with everything that NCQA has ever done and providing the framework, there's always this idea of opportunity for improvement. So while this is the threshold, we as organizations need to seek those opportunities for improvement and continually evaluate ourselves and how we are keeping the member at the forefront of everything that we're doing because that is what NCQA's sole purpose is, to help our individuals live optimally in their least restrictive environment. And honestly, that's in the standards. So that that is an NCQA definition that I use all the time, but I think it's going to be something that we have to look at um, as an advantage overall, even though it may seem like a daunting task, I think the reward is going to be something that probably we cannot even measure. Tell us a little bit about Centene, about the the size, the scope of the company, um, who you cover or geographic area that, that you cover. And then with that frame of reference for our, our you know, for the listeners, for our audience, um, tell us a little bit about how you deliver for this measure. You, you could talk about any of the NCQA programs that uh, you deal with also, because we've only been talking about LTSS because they're new measures. But um, I, I want to know about, as an accreditation measure, how many different programs you uh, you get to handle for NCQA. Uh, in terms of Centene, we have plans in 16 states, LTSS plans in 16 states, and that is covering more than 400,000 members. So that's a lot of lives that we get to cover. And again, I have oversight of all the accreditation activities for those states and for those members. It's really, for Centene, it is our goal to apply the framework of the LTSS standards, the distinction standards, to deliver care to our members. We look to assess, plan, facilitate, coordinate, evaluate, and any of the other eights. Let's try advocate for the services and the supports for our members that they need to achieve the highest quality outcome possible. We're helping them to utilize the appropriate services and to remain in the least restrictive environment possible. Again, that's that goes back to how NCQA defines LTSS. And through all of the applied processes and procedures that are outlined in the standards, and specifically LTSS 1, um, this distinction standard, when we're looking at that, we really seek to reduce those unplanned transitions. We want to increase the outpatient utilization. We want to see our members satisfied with the services that they receive. And honestly, most important, we want to see them buy into their own health. It's our goal to change communities one life at a time 
And it's my honor and pleasure to be able to work with the programming for Centene for those 16 states and those over 400,000 members. It It's honestly probably one of the greatest pleasures that I've had in my life is to be able to service people in this way. And that's what I love about NCQA. If you think about it in terms of there's there's two particular elements in the LTSS distinction that talks about how you're going to reduce unplanned transitions for the member or the individual. And then the next element is how you're going to mitigate or reduce unplanned transitions for the population. So between those two, you get to look at it from a micro and a macro perspective, and you get to see how the individual case managers work with the member ends up domino effect into the fact that we have we have been able to reduce unplanned transitions. So when you think about the work that NCQA is wanting us to do, when I think about the programming that Centene has in place, when I think about what we're doing in the health equity sector for our members, I see it as the ability to take the data, breathe life into what that data is telling us, who it's telling us about, and what the next steps are. I know that you're working as well with NCQA on our health equity accreditation programs as well, which is uh, solely focused on health equity and trying to solve some of these issues. Um, and I'm not talking about solving the gaps. I'm sorry, I'm talking about solving the issues before you can solve the gaps, which would include how to send teen, activate, actuate um, any of these kinds of programs from um, from your positioning, what do you do to encourage uh, the providers? What do you do to encourage these facilities to be able to actually put things into action as quickly as possible in the most effective way to set up connections with community-based services? One of the things that that we do very well is we're in the community. Um, if you notice, people wouldn't know what Centene is, but they would know what one of our health plans is they would know what sunshine health is they would know what sunflower health is or buckeye and what we've worked to do since the the very beginning of centene it was a vision to deliver the right care to the community and to let the community know we're behind you it's not some huge corporate space that doesn't know who you are we're behind you as an organization and we are effectuating changes in our own backyards essentially and in our own communities. And that's the beautiful thing about Centene is that's our purpose, is to transform one life at a time. But in order for us to do that, there's a couple of things that, that we need to make sure that we're doing, right? So through LTSS, we need to make sure that we have the appropriate providers in place because quality of care and service starts with the appropriate providers. And we need to make sure that we have appropriate qualifications and that they're meeting those qualifications. And again, like I said prior, we need to have transparent and candid communication with our providers through the case management process. It also goes back to looking at health equity and what we're doing internally and how we're training our staff um, whether you, you see the individual or the member or whether you're interfacing with a provider or a hospital network or whether you're not interfacing at all with them, but you're uh, behind the scenes doing data work or doing quality work. Um, we have really done a phenomenal job of ensuring that we have all the tools and resources available in terms of understanding what health equity is, what healthcare disparities are, and how to 
uh, move appropriately in that space with any individual that we come across. But you'll also notice that when you look at the just all of the plans in general, we obviously have such a diverse population. If you're in, in New Mexico, we have Native Americans on staff that are able to help um, with any cultural um, questions that may come up related to that particular culture. Um, again, if you're looking at in places that have, I even know we have a large Burmese population and we've looked to hire people um, who can speak that language, who understand the culture. And not only do they sit behind a desk, but our case managers are going out into the field. They are going into members' homes. They are going into providers' offices. They're helping to transform practices. They're helping to transform lives through being in the members' home. They're working with the social workers at the nursing facility. They are really doing their level best, again, to effectuate change for the life of the member, but to get the member to buy into their own health so that they can have whatever type of independence they'd like to have in their lives. So tell us about you uh, a little bit. Tell us about um, your background, how you got to become a, an accreditation expert. Uh, and then tell us about your relationship with NCQA. But let's start for one at a time so we can just get a, a, a little piece of, of your background. Sure. So I am I, honestly... This is the part of the game where I tell people I've been in the quality field for a little over 20 years and then people start doing the math and then they can tell how old I am. So sometimes I um, I kind of skip over that a little bit, but I have been in quality for over 20 years now. Um, and I always tell people the accreditation life chose me. Um, I think that I'm not sure if anybody would have gone into their career in healthcare and thought accreditation is where it's at, but I'm going to tell you. I absolutely love accreditation. Uh, I think that accreditation has actually allowed me to live a life of service to other people, which I've talked about uh, a little bit um, in a couple of the other questions. I've always just wanted to live an impactful life and to help other people through service. And, and accreditation has actually allowed me to do that. The work that we get to do, and I said get to do, not have to do, we get to do this work. It literally makes the difference in the care that's delivered. Um, it, it makes a difference in the quality of providers that we choose. It, it makes a difference in even down to the denial rationale that's written in uh, a denial letter or an appeal letter. And then ultimately, it comes out in the performance of outcomes of our programs. It's a fast-paced, ever-changing, rewarding world. Um, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm truly grateful that I have the opportunity to have oversight of LTSS distinction for accreditation activities for Centene and also complex case management. I don't think that I could have imagined my life being any different than it is now. But I have to say 20 years ago, I could have never imagined it being this great. Seeing data and seeing numbers and seeing research and seeing results and seeing them just lying there. And without anybody doing anything to interpret them, and then you interpret them in ways that can improve people's lives. And then you're in a position where you can influence others to do what they can to help other people improve their life. You know, and, or you see numbers that are going down. You see negative stats and say, people can't live that way. There must be something that I can do to try to keep molding things and make things more perfect than they are now. A lot of people are having a good time. A lot of people are healthy or getting the services they need. Let's make it so everybody is 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 getting there. What 
what inspires you? What motivates you um, for doing this work? Honestly, I just love people, to be honest with you. Um, I know I talk a lot about uh, data and math and the joke in my house is that I'm not that great at math, but quite frankly, I absolutely love math. And I love the idea that we can take a universal language, which is math. Math is the universal language. One plus one, it equals two everywhere. Um, and we can utilize and, and leverage that universal language. And then we can figure out what is that telling us? How are we going to go? What's going to be the next step? And I know, you know, data is not exactly exciting to everyone, but, it, but here's the thing. I could tell you all sorts of things about data. I could tell you how, you know, we, we can look at it. We can reduce um, readmissions. We can reduce ED. We can increase this. We can reduce this. I can tell you all about that. But at the heart of every person, there is this determination to lead a life of significance, however that is for you. For me, again, it's by being able to help other people live a better life but I'm going to say that even with all the success stories that I get an opportunity and a privilege of hearing, I really do have the best seat in the house. Um, I get to work with all these states. I get to see all of these uh, success stories. I get to see members having positive health outcomes. Even though I'll never meet a lot of our members, I'm just so attached to the work that we're doing here. We really are transforming communities and we really are making life better for people. Their ability to overcome barriers that you and I may never know and the obstacles that they have to overcome and then realize a goal. That's just inspired me over and over and over again. And the crazy thing is that as you know, qualitative as that is, it's the numbers that brings it all together and it brings it back to square one. We are doing this and these are the outcomes and every little person's story makes this beautiful tapestry, this beautiful masterpiece of the work that we get to do. And it's all one stitch at a time. So I'm just really, truly blown away and grateful. HEDIS, uh, CAPS, NCQA, those are all my kids just know what those things mean. Like, how cool is that, um, that my children understand what this is? So I have a, an affinity for NCQA. I've been doing accreditation work for 20 years, but it wasn't until I was pregnant with my first child that we really started going through and working through NCQA. And just like pages of a book that you've read over and over and over again, because you get something different every time, the standards just come alive to me every time that I get to read them. And even with these changes coming up, there's something so magical and so radical about these changes that I know I can see five years down the road, we're going to be able to be powerhouses. And honestly, NCQA is just brave enough to get out there and to say, hey, we need to put some framework around this and we need to put some standardization around this so that you can have quality programs and great outcomes because in the very end it's the member that benefits nicole mclean accreditation manager for centene with the bottom line on delivering ltss for more information on updates to our ltss programs go to ncqa.org and search for ltss in the search field in the upper right hand corner of the page we now turn to our Fast Facts segment, providing important bits of health-related info to share with colleagues and friends. 
August brings National Immunization Awareness Month. NCQA strongly advocates for immunization schedules. Right now in this segment, I'm focusing on childhood immunizations. Our website indicates that childhood vaccines protect children from a number of serious and potentially life-threatening diseases, including diphtheria, measles, meningitis, polio, tetanus, and whooping cough, at a time in their lives when they are most vulnerable to disease. Every year, approximately 300 children in the United States die from vaccine-preventable diseases. Immunizations are essential for disease prevention and are a critical aspect of preventive care for children. Vaccination coverage must be maintained in order to prevent a resurgence of vaccine-preventable diseases. Let me talk to all the clinicians and health workers in our audience now. Here are some tips from the CDC on how best to inform and remind young patients, and their parents of course, about upcoming immunizations. First, make sure they know your office immunization policy before they walk in the door. Uh, Discuss it over the phone before they show up while they're making their appointment. Put it in writing and post it on the wall and point to it when they come in. Also, number two, review their vaccination status and prepare them to receive vaccines. Let patients know when vaccines are scheduled or if they're coming up. Set up reminders, emails, automatic texts, and hand them a form to fill out while they're in the rating room where they can list things that maybe they have possible allergies or contraindications from certain vaccines. Number three, answer questions. Yes, make recommendations, give reminders about vaccinations, but also remember to listen to the patient and to their concerns. Then share your own experiences. Feel free to reflect on your own family or on your your own children's vaccination history. If needed, explain the implications of refusing or delaying vaccinations. And then finally, create a plan to continue the conversation in future appointments. Again, these points come from the CDC. I'll provide the link in this episode's description. There are more tips in there, not just on patient communication, but also on setting up your office and addressing office worker policy and staff needs. Now, in NCQA's HEDIS measures package, you'll find the childhood immunization status measure, which we've mentioned before, known as CIS. This measure addresses the percentage of children two years of age who've had a number of specific vaccines by their second birthday. The measure calculates a rate for each of a number of named vaccines and nine separate combination rates of vaccines. More on the CIS measure from the link found in this episode's description. As we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we come to the part where we ask you for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime, and be sure to include Inside Healthcare in the subject line. If you're coming up empty, here's our question for this episode. What three things would you ask a patient to help determine their LTSS needs? And if you have a comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on our show, maybe you'd like to be that guest or you have a mentor, you could send us our, send our way, just email us and let us know. Communications at ncqa.org. And be sure to write Inside Healthcare, those three words, in the subject line. Hope to hear from you soon. And that's it for episode 112 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thank you again for joining us. This episode is done, but there are plenty that came before it for you to explore and investigate. 
You can find us at blog.ncqa.org or find us on any Apple or Google streaming app. Whether you download the show, whether you stream it, if you find us, then follow us. Hit the little heart button, give us a favorite, and spread the word about the show. Help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. And if you haven't done so already, please connect with NCQA on LinkedIn, on Twitter, and you'll find video promos for this very show to share with your friends and colleagues. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.